Well, it is a, a great joy to be with you all this morning. I bring you greetings from Sterling Park Baptist Church out by Dallas Airport. It's about 40 minutes away from here on a Sunday morning and six and a half hours on a Monday afternoon, I imagine. Uh, but I really have enjoyed my time over the weekend getting to know a lot of the guys in the church. So uh, thank you for the privilege of bringing God's word. Uh, we've been praying for you uh, for your entire existence, uh, even when you were a, a, a gleam in Capitol Hill Baptist's eye uh, many years ago. We were praying for you all, and so it's really uh, personally exciting for me to, uh, to be with you and to see all that God's doing. So I want to start this morning with uh, a couple of questions. Uh, first, I want you to think for a second about who it is you would most like to have dinner with. So who would you choose? For the sake of this exercise, no one is off limits. It could be a loved one who's passed away. It could be a figure from history like Abraham Lincoln or Martin Luther King Jr. It could be a sports hero like Derek Jeter of our beloved New York Yankees. No? Nobody? Okay. Uh, maybe, maybe you're a literature person. So it would be Shakespeare or, or Dickens. Maybe, maybe you're into politics, and so it would be... It would be Kennedy or Reagan. Whoever it is that you choose, imagine for a second what it would be like to have dinner with them. You'd get to know them in an entirely different way. You could, you could ask them questions. You could hear their stories. And presumably, they would get to know you as well. Right? They'd learn your story. They'd ask you questions. You might even, you might even hope that you could maintain a friendship uh, that would go beyond that one meal. Who would you most like to have dinner with. Now a second question, with what kind of person could you least imagine having dinner? Think about it, with whom would you absolutely not want to sit down and share a meal? Maybe it's someone you'd consider dangerous, like, like a gang member or a terrorist. Or maybe it's just someone you find despicable, like the CEO of a company that, that knowingly pollutes the environment. Maybe it's someone who publicly advocates for a different position than yours on uh, things like abortion or homosexuality or, or gender issues. Whatever it is, imagine how that meal would go. I mean, what would you talk about, except maybe how, how despicable you find them? Right? How would you be able to communicate clearly enough your disapproval of them, right? so that your friends and your family don't think that you're some kind of Coward and sellout, right? Having a meal, we understand, is, is a way of showing approval for someone. What we see in our passage for this morning from Matthew's Gospel, that Jesus' choice of dinner companions is ruffling quite a few feathers. So if you, if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, I want to read for us Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 9. Let's, let's listen and see who it is that Jesus ate dinner with. It says there, starting in verse 9, As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. 
And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So at this point in Matthew's narrative, Jesus has become something of a celebrity. Uh, Back in Matthew chapter 7, we read that his teaching is astonishing people. He is healing folks. He's performing miracles. Huge crowds are flocking to Jesus. And so when Jesus rolls into town, right, one of the big questions is, where is he going to eat? Who is he going to honor with his presence Who amongst us is important enough that somebody like Jesus is going to want to spend time with them? Right? The arrival of Jesus was surely the most exciting thing going along or going around in the the sleepy town of Capernaum. Right? There was no bigger show at the time than Jesus. Right? He's the person everyone's talking about from Jerusalem out into the hinterlands. And so you can understand something of the shock when we read there in verse 10. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many of the best, most important, most powerful people came and were... No, that's not what it says. Verse 10, as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Right? You read that and you go, wait, what? Jesus and his disciples are hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but Matthew tells us many tax collectors and sinners. And not just that, but they were reclining with them. Right? It wasn't like Jesus was sitting there repulsed by them, like keeping them at a distance. He wasn't merely tolerating them. He had settled into a posture of fellowship with them. He had, he had put his feet up and was chilling with these tax collectors and sinners. So it's no surprise there in verse 11 that we read when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees were the religious experts. They were the ones who took it upon themselves to decide who was in and who was out when it came to religious matters. They were the ones you would think that, a, that a, an important rabbi like Jesus would want to hang out with. Right? The, the Pharisees were strict. They were disciplined. They did things the right way. And one of the ways they demonstrated their goodness to the world was by staying at a distance from sinful people. Right? That word sinners that Matthew uses here, you, you might want to think of that like as a capital S. Right? These were not people who struggled with pride. Right? These, these were people... These were people who had really serious things wrong with their lives. These were notorious people. These were people who didn't abide by the acceptable standards of behavior. These are the people who slept with the wrong people, made money in all the wrong ways, got drunk at all the parties, and didn't really care about it, frankly. These were the people who knew they weren't good people. They knew they weren't welcome in the the good homes of respectable people. And so you see something of the the central drama of our passage for this morning. 
And so what I want to do with our time is simply answer that question that the Pharisees ask. Why does Jesus eat with tax collectors and sinners? And I think if we're able to answer that question together this morning, we're going to learn something really important about Jesus and about what it is that he came to do. But before we dig in too far, you have to, I think, go back and get a little sense of the context, right? So I've skipped over a little bit verse 9, right, where we meet Matthew, our, our author, for the first time. It says there in Matthew 9, 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. A bit earlier in chapter 9, Jesus had returned from a trip across the Sea of Galilee. He's now in something of his adopted hometown, Capernaum. He's healed a paralyzed man. He started a, a, a controversy by asserting his authority to forgive sins. And so now Jesus is moving on from the house where he performed that miracle. And as he's going along, he sees Matthew sitting at a tax booth. Right, that means Matthew is a tax collector. And that's really significant. You need to know the background there. At this point in history, this region of the world was occupied by the Romans. And one thing that the, the Romans had done was to levy oppressive taxes on the Jewish people. One of the ways these taxes were collected by the empire was through tolls on the roads. So what the Romans would do, would be they, they would sell the, the rights to collect taxes to anyone who could afford it. Right, so let's say that the taxes that are due to Rome for, from Chevrolet are $100,000. If you have $100,000 laying around, you could buy the rights to collect the taxes from Chevrolet. Rome's happy. They've got their money. You give them the $100,000, and then it's open season on the people of Chevrolet. You can collect as much money as you can and keep whatever profit you make. And so men would buy the rights to collect taxes, and then they would extort uh, from their neighbors. So tax collectors were the worst kind of traitors. They, they were actually helping to feed and entrench the invading army. They were agents of economic deprivation. They were thieves. They were extortionists. They harassed and oppressed innocent people for their own personal gain. Right, again, imagine for a moment that, that a foreign nation invaded and occupied your homeland, invaded and occupied, we'll say, Chevrolet. Right, and let's say they levied taxes that were so brutal that you had to scratch and hope and pray that you'd have enough left over to feed your family. Then imagine that your next-door neighbor went to work for the invading army, for the occupying government, right? And so as you're barely scra scraping by, praying that you have enough to feed your kids, you look over there and that guy has just put in a new swimming pool because he's taken your money and given it to the enemy and kept some for himself. Right? How would you feel about your neighbor? Right? So when we read that Matthew is sitting at his tax collecting booth, think the worst. Right? He's not the guy on, on the, the dullest toll road sitting in the, tax, in the little toll booth you know, taking your $1.25 so you can get on the road. No, this, this guy is keeping the enemy fed and, and taking food off your table. Right? This, is a, this is a terrible person who's done terrible things. And he obviously doesn't care what other people think about him or he wouldn't have chosen this particular profession. So when Jesus passes by there in verse 9, we know exactly what to expect. Jesus is going to set things straight. 
he's going to call this traitor out. He's going to condemn him on behalf of all the good people of Judea. He's going to preach a sermon about these terrible people who are ruining our society. At the very least, he's going to, he's going to shun him. He'll ignore him. He'll, he'll make it really clear to Matthew that what you're doing is not okay. Then the most extraordinary thing happens. Jesus walks along. He doesn't, he doesn't hiss at this tax collector. He doesn't taunt him. He calls him and says, follow me. We see there at the end of verse 9, Matthew responds by dropping everything, following after Jesus. Next thing we know in verse 10, Jesus is reclining at Matthew's table with a bunch of sinners and tax collectors. Matthew's too humble to tell us this, but Mark tells us that it was actually the party was at Matthew's house. These were his friends. And that's the context in which the Pharisees ask their perfectly reasonable question of Jesus' disciples there in verse 11. What on earth is your rabbi doing? What is your teacher doing? But again, imagine that Jesus came into our world right now. What would you expect of him? Well, certainly he's got to attend the national prayer breakfast. Right? He's got to go to all the big Christian conferences. He's probably going to do interviews on the Christian blogs, do the rounds on all the podcasts and Christian radio shows. How do you think most evangelical church leaders would respond if Jesus came and started going to dinner with outspoken LGBTQ activists or abortion rights lobbyists or adult film stars? Wouldn't you feel upset? In some way, wouldn't you feel betrayed? Like, Jesus, why are you eating with those people? Are you saying you approve of their lifestyle? Don't you know that, that those are the bad guys? They're what's wrong with the world. We've been, we've been playing ball. We've been keeping the rules. We've been doing the right thing. Why aren't you, why aren't you hanging out with us? Right? Their, their question is understandable there in verse 11. Why is Jesus eating with these people? It's, it's frankly scandalous. Look how Jesus answers them there in verses 12 to 13. It says, when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The image that Jesus uses there, it's strong, it's memorable, clear. Right? He compares himself to a physician. Right? No one wonders why a doctor spends his, his or her time hanging out with sick people. Right? Those are the people that need the help. And those are the people who know they need the help. In the same way that, that a physician goes to those who are physically sick, so Jesus, the, the great physician of our souls, says that he came for those who are spiritually sick. You see there at the end of verse 13, Jesus is explaining his mission to us. Here is God himself, the, the divine son of God who has always existed, who always will exist, and, and he's come to earth, he's taken on human flesh, and now he's telling us why. What did he come to do? Jesus says he came to call sinners. To call sinners to repentance, 
to call them to, to leave behind their ways, their, their soul-destroying and futile efforts to find happiness and meaningness, meaningless, I'm sorry, meaning in life. Right? The, he's calling them to leave behind their attempts to make life okay through, through money, control, success, fame. Jesus is calling them to leave behind all the ways they've been hurt, rejected, despised, ostracized, calling them to come follow him, just like he called Matthew. He's calling them to come and find rest for their souls, to find forgiveness, to find healing, to find a restored relationship with God. See, brothers and sisters, Jesus left the Father's side. He left all the riches of heaven. He took on human flesh, and here he tells us why. It was to call sinners. This is what God's salvation looks like. God didn't simply open the door and make himself available to us. He didn't leave us breadcrumbs so that we could follow a trail to find him. But God in his love came after sinners. He went in the flesh to where sinners were. He went to have dinner with them. He went to hang out with them. And he went there because he knew perfectly well they would never come to him any more than a lost sheep finds its shepherd. Jesus knew that if he didn't go, if he didn't call sinners, they would never come. And here's the thing, as Matthew's gospel unfolds, what we see is that this, this project of calling sinners is going to cost Jesus everything. Because he didn't, he didn't just come to call sinners like you and I might sort of execute errands this afternoon. No, for him to call sinners to himself meant that Jesus would be handed over to the Gentiles, that he would be mocked, tortured, condemned, nailed to a cross, left to die, as if he were the criminal, as if he were the sinner, even though he had done no wrong at all. And as Jesus hung on that cross, he took the punishment that all of his people deserved for the sins that they've committed there on the cross, God the Father laid on Jesus all of the, the wrath, all of the punishment that, that our sins deserved, that Matthew's sins deserved, that the sins of those people at the house party who would come to trust in him, all, this, all the punishment they deserved. You see, the, the irony is that the, the physician healed the sick by taking their disease on himself. He bore our guilt so that we could be born into new life, so that we could enjoy freedom from guilt and fear. Jesus rose from the dead in victory over sin and death. He's alive now, so that we can be united to him by faith and have eternal life with him. We started with a question, why would Jesus eat with people like this? And I think the answer is as clear as it is shocking. Because those are the kinds of people that he came to call. So with that said, let me just point out two things that I think might help us to, to see from this passage. First, I think in this passage we see a warning to the self-righteous. There in verse 13, Jesus tells us why he came. Right? We, we've seen he came to call sinners. And again, that's shocking because those are the people we would think he would reject. But what might actually be just as shocking is what he says he didn't come to do. There in verse 14, he says he didn't come 
to call the righteous. In, in the context here, Jesus is clearly poking at the Pharisees. After all, they're the ones who are questioning him there in verse 11. I don't think we're meant to understand that Jesus really thinks the Pharisees are actually righteous in terms of that they're good enough to stand before God. If you remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he repeatedly skewered their insufficient version of righteousness. He says, look, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, uh, you've got no hope. Later on in Matthew's Gospel, he, he calls the Pharisees vipers whitewashed tombs. So I don't think Jesus actually thinks that, that these Pharisees are righteous. Instead, when he, when he refers to them as the righteous, he's speaking to them on the grounds of their own self-perception. The Pharisees looked down on sinners. They looked down on Matthew and his friends because they thought they were the ones who were righteous. Right? After all, they were the ones who claimed to love God and to keep his law. So Jesus says something important there in verse 13. He gives the rationale for his mission. He says that he, he came to call sinners, and he, he explains using the words of the prophet Hosea. He says there in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous sinners. In the part of the book of Hosea that Jesus references here, God is rebuking his people for their lack of love. And so in Hosea 6.6, 6, the Lord sort of drops this on, on them. He says, what exactly do you think I want from you? Do you think what I want is sort of long prayers and attendance at the temple? Do you think what I really want are your tithes and sacrifices? Do I, do I really want most from my people a bunch of religious activity? God says, no, what I want is love. Right? It turns out God has no interest in creating a religious program that gives people a bunch of things that they can do to make themselves feel good and righteous. What God wants is for his people to be loving, to be tender-hearted, to care about one another, to, to look out for one another. So what does that have to do with the Pharisees? Why is Jesus asking them to go and figure out what this means. Well, remember, they're awesome at the rules. They had religion down to a science. They had the sacrifice part down perfectly. But what was missing from the Pharisees? Love. They looked on the tax collectors and sinners, and they hated them. They should have gone after them, right? They, they should have pursued them. They should have helped them. They should have prayed for them. They should have, should have pled with their brothers to return to God. Right? If they were really righteous. If they were righteous the way God defines being righteous. Right? If they were loving, what would they have done? They would have called sinners to repentance. They would have moved towards them and shared a meal with them. They would have done... Exactly what Jesus came to do. So Jesus says to them, look, I didn't come for you. I'm not here to heal people who think they've already made themselves healthy. I'm not here for the self-righteous. I'm here for the people who know they need me. And so perhaps the most important question for each one of us this morning is, which are you? Are you righteous 
or are you a sinner? I think this is challenging for us. If we drift along on the current of our wider world, I think it's becoming harder and harder for us to say we are sinners. Because everything around us encourages us to think that we should, we should feel like we're great just the way we are. Right? It, is, it is widely assumed that the way to be a healthy, well-adjusted person is to learn to accept yourself completely right? just the way you are. The heroes in our stories and our movies are the people who learn to be true to themselves, to to throw off anything that anyone would would put on them in trying to tell them to change. And so it might be hard for us to come to the conclusion that we are, in fact, sinners. It might be hard for us to hear Jesus' call for sinners to turn to him. It's possible that we might become so self-accepting, so comfortable that we are good enough when the great physician offers us real, genuine healing, we simply say, what do you mean? I'm not sick. So friend, how do you understand yourself as you stand before God? Are you basically healthy, basically righteous, basically good enough? Or can you feel the the weight and depth of your sin? I imagine there are several different kinds of people here this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus. And maybe this all sounds a little bit odd to you. Of course, you're not sick. You're not a terrible sinner. You're basically a good person. So what's that all about? I think Jesus would say that you, like the Pharisees, have a bit of a self-perception problem. If you think that you're basically okay, then it's, it's not so much that you're not spiritually sick as it is that you don't realize it. God's word could not be more clear that each and every one of us, no matter how religious, how nice, how polite, how civic-minded, how successful, every one of us is a sinner. Every one of us needs to hear Jesus' call and turn to him. I think if you examine your life honestly, you'll see that that is in fact true. That you've built your life, your identity, uh, on things other than God, your creator. That you've looked for meaning and pleasure and happiness in lesser things, that you've given your worship and your love over to lesser things. And if you look at your life, you'll, I think, begin to see fruits of this all over. Maybe it's bad habits you can't change, broken relationships, guilt, selfishness, pride, anger. And maybe it manifests itself in your striving for things, only to to finally get them and realize that they actually didn't bring you the the satisfaction and joy you thought they were going to bring. It's not enough, it turns out, to be a decent or even a a largely moral person. I promise you, you're not as good as these Pharisees were. But Jesus saw them as as self-deceived and sick. And the biggest problem was that they didn't see it. Friend, I wonder if you can see that you need help. Right? The diagnosis is the first step to the cure. Only those who know that they're sick will ever go to the great physician for healing. There's a second kind of person I imagine might be here this morning. Maybe you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, but you do feel the weight of your sin and failure and guilt. And maybe you feel like you could never come to Jesus because you're so unworthy. 
I, I have a friend, I, I lead a Bible study on Wednesday nights for guys from a local recovery group. And there was a guy who had been coming along for four or five weeks, not because he was particularly interested in reading the Bible, but uh, because uh, basically the courts had told him as part of his release from prison that he had to attend this recovery group. His sponsor had told him he had to come to this Bible study, and so he was coming. And so he pulled me aside after four or five weeks of attending the Bible study, and he said, can I, can I talk to you privately? So we went down to my, my office, and he said, uh, he said, look, I, I've always known that I can't be a Christian. Right, so this is a guy who, who, uh, who came to in a tow truck full of drugs, having just smashed into a police car. Right? That's going to get you multiple years in jail right off the bat. He'd been released. Uh, he was coming to this Bible study. He said, look, I've always known I'm not a Christian. He's like, you know, you figure out like when you're around 10 or 11, you're not going to be an NBA player because you can't jump and run. And like you figure out when you're like 13 or 14, like I'm not going to be a doctor like, I don't like school, I'm not very good at it. He's like, in the same way, I've always known I'm not a Christian because I'm not a good person. He said, but as we keep reading the Bible, I, I'm, I'm getting the impression that actually Jesus is saying that he wants people like me to be his followers. He's like, so am I, am I getting that right? He was kind of embarrassed. I think he felt like vulnerable. Like he was... I was like, no, you absolutely get it. That's, that's actually exactly right. That's the, the good news is that Jesus came to call sinners. He, he came to bring new life and forgiveness to all of us. So, friend, never imagine that your sin is too great for Jesus to accept you. Even today, if you'll put your trust in Christ, if you'll turn from your self-centered life of sin and come to Him, you will find life. Jesus calls you, friend, to, to leave behind your old life, just like Matthew left that tax booth. Right, Matthew suddenly had eyes to see that everything he had lived for wasn't worth it. He suddenly had eyes to see that, that following Jesus was better than all of this money he had collected. That's what we call repentance. Turning from your sin. Feeling genuine remorse for it. Asking God's forgiveness. And then following after Jesus. And friends, for those of us who are Christians, can you, can you see the application of this principle for your life? There is no becoming a follower of Jesus that doesn't start with you seeing your sin and turning from it. Right At some point you have to realize, I am sin sick and need a physician. But it's easy, if you're not careful, over time, become self-righteous again. Right? That is the besetting sin of religious people. Right? You see how the religious establishment reacts to Jesus. They're puffed up by their own good behavior. They despise anyone who's not as good as they are. Right? Missing out the whole time on the point. The danger is that you and I, because maybe we're no longer notorious sinners, the danger is that over time, by God's grace, as we become more holy, the danger is that you begin to think, I'm not a sinner anymore. Even if you wouldn't say it with your mouth, it's, it's easy for that to, to creep into your attitude. So, brothers and sisters, the, the question for you is, are you more or less aware of your need? More or less aware of your personal insufficiency and your spiritual dependency now than you were a few months ago or a few years ago? I think it's the experience of maturing Christians that as they grow in grace, they also become more aware of their sin. Right? As they begin to see God's perfect standard more clearly, they see their own sin more clearly as well. 
So I wonder if that's your experience. You could ask yourself, are you, are you critical and judgmental like the Pharisees were? Are you, are you quickly aware of other people's faults? And do you walk around with a sense of being slightly better than everyone else? Or do you find yourself regularly amazed at the grace of God? Or do you find it inconceivable that God would send his son to, to call and to die for and to save someone like you? Remember the story of John Newton, the slave trader saved by God's amazing grace? He became a pastor and an author, and by the time of his death was one of the most respected men in all of England. And near the end of his life, uh, he told an assistant that he was uh, becoming an old man and that he felt like his memory was, was fading. In fact, he told this, this young assistant that he could only remember two things anymore. is that I'm a great sinner and that Christ is a great Savior. Right? That's the testimony of someone who's been healed by the great physician. This is one of the things that you come to to do every Sunday. This is one of the ways that you worship God together as a congregation. You remind one another of your great need. Right? You sing songs and you pray prayers and you sort of scrape off the, the barnacles of self-sufficiency that, that tend to cling to us as the week goes on. Right? You read God's word, you sing his praises, you pray until the, the, the cold rime of self-righteousness that, that's collected during the week begins to thaw. And then you apply the fresh balm of God's love for you in Christ. You remember and rejoice that we are all Matthew. We are all Zacchaeus. We're all the woman caught in adultery. We are all the thief on the cross. We're all sin-sick people healed by the great physician. I think that's how you get the love that Jesus talks about in this quote from Hosea here. That's how you wean your heart off self-righteousness. That's how you find yourself captured by love and mercy rather than the mere performance of religious ritual. Remember, the good news is that Jesus didn't come for good people, but for needy people. He didn't come for the healthy, but for the sick. And that's good news because if it were any other way, you and I couldn't be saved. And that brings us then just briefly to the, the second and final thing for us to notice in this passage. And that is, as we follow Jesus, we, we ought to find that we become more like him. Experiencing the love and mercy of Jesus towards sinners ought to make us into people who are loving, merciful towards sinners. Right? If we're going to leave everything and follow Jesus, we are naturally over time going to, to learn to love and do the things that he loved and did. That means that we need to have love for a lost and sin-sick world. We need to cultivate sympathy for those trapped in their sins we need to work to bring them into contact with Jesus, the great physician. You do this corporately as a church. It's one of the reasons you exist. You are here to proclaim the gospel to Cheverly. Right? This is why churches plant other churches here and around the world. Because sin-sick people need to hear about the physician who died for them. This is why you proclaim the gospel to each other when you gather. This is why you're teaching the children down the hall about their need for a savior. This is also something we do as individual followers of Christ. Jesus was a friend of sinners. He hung out with people who were inconvenient and messy and sloppy. 
turns out those are the kinds of people that Jesus had dinner with. So let me just simply encourage you to befriend people who don't know Jesus. The easiest thing to do, I think, is to do what Jesus did, have dinner with them. And once you're together, simply love them. Enjoy them. Maybe tell them about what Jesus did for you. Right? I doubt Matthew was shy in talking about Jesus. Right? The first thing he does is he goes and he gathers a crowd of his friends. My guess is you couldn't talk to Matthew for too long before he would tell you about Jesus. Right? Those of us who have experienced God's unmerited favor should be the first to shower mercy on outcasts. Right? Those of us who have been inoculated to the lie that what God really wants from us is our sacrifice, our performance of religious duty, that what God really cares about most is the clothes you wear and the religious-sounding words that you've learned to speak. Right? Those of us who have had our self-righteousness replaced with mercy should be rushing out to serve those in need, the sin-sick, the immigrants, the prisoners. Friends, experiencing the mercy and grace of Jesus ought to make us merciful, gracious people. At the beginning, I, I asked you who you'd most want to share a meal with. Maybe someone famous, someone important, someone interesting. I think if you ask Jesus that question, he would say that he wants to have dinner with sinners, like you and me. Friends, that's good news. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we delight in this, this little vignette, this little story that captures your heart and your love so clearly. Jesus, we rejoice that in that day when you walked the earth, sinful outcasts were drawn to you. They could sense in you and hear in your teaching and see in your bearing your love and mercy and compassion. And Jesus, we can't wait to see you face to face. We can't wait to have that same experience. We rejoice in, in all that you are and all that you've done for us. Father, we, we delight in your love that you would send Jesus to, to show us what you're like. Holy Spirit, we pray that as we go into the world this week, you would be powerfully at work in us. You'd be powerfully at work in Chevrolet Baptist Church. You would be weaning us off, increasingly off of self-righteousness. You would help us to delight in all that we have in Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.